Welcome to another NKU podcast. We're honored to speak today with Dr. W. Scott Poole. Dr. Poole is a professor of history at the College of Charleston who teaches and writes about horror and popular culture. He is the author of most recent book, Wasteland, The Great War, and The Origins of Modern Horror. And his previous books include the award-winning Monsters in America and the biography of Vampira, Dark Goddess of Horror. He is a Bram Stoker Award nominee for his critically acclaimed biography of H.P. Lovecraft in The Mountains of Madness. His newest release, just a week ago, is Dark Carnivals, Modern Horror and the Origins of the American Empire. Our, con- our conversation today will focus on the newest release and Wasteland, The Great War and the Origins of Modern Horror. However... I've got to say, as someone who's been reading H.P. Lovecraft and playing Call of Cthulhu role-playing games since middle school, I'm likely to throw in a few questions about him as well. Uh, we can talk about that guy. Okay, good. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say yes. Fine. I've got to add that I met uh, Dr. Poole when I was working at the South Carolina Historical Society. Mm-hmm. And working in archives was fantastic. Sometimes you got researchers who uh, were very demanding and uh, could be high-maintenance. And I'm happy to report... Dr. Poole is not one of those people. He couldn't have been nicer whenever <laughs> oh, he came to the old fireproof building. And so right. it's great to be able to talk to you once again. Nice and so we've got some questions about those two books in particular. Uh, Dr. Hackett, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I think I would. Um, your, the, the book, of course, talks about uh, Wasteland, talks about horror before and after World War One. So my question is, how does horror differ before the war and after the war? In, in, if you could sum it up just for, with a few words. Yeah, uh, that is, that's a great question because, uh, you know, uh, there's not a suggestion in the book that uh, obviously that horror begins uh, with World War I or that, you know, sort of stories about uh, Supernatural evil certainly, you know, has uh, a history as at least as old as urban civilization, and I'm sure uh, much, much longer. Um, what changed was, um, and and really, what became modern about horror is that um, it became an experience that was not simply. Uh, something that you would meet in a gothic castle, uh, although gothic castles continue to be a pretty important part of the, a pretty important trope. Um, But the experience of the Great War and uh, sort of the, um, I'm one of those historians who thinks of 1914 to 1945 as, as really one uh, era which I think is more the kind of the direction we're moving in. I, I, I think once we get past that period, um, the encounter uh, with death brings, on such a large scale, brings a nihilism uh, to horror uh, that is not, is, I will say, mostly not present uh, before. Um, it is, uh, it is, it is interesting to me that particularly as the, the 20th and into the 21st century moves along, the 
the monster becomes less and less likely to be slain, uh, which in fairy tales, uh, the ghost stories of the 19th century, uh, you at least had some, there was at least a strong likelihood that the good guys were going to win. And uh, I think in a, in a post-Great War world, it wasn't even clear who the good guys were anymore. So, uh, Dr. Paul, do you think that horror has ever lost those elements? You know, that once we got past that time period, and of course, we've moved into World War II, as you said, is almost continuation of World War I. Uh, do you think horror has ever shaken out those elements, or is it just embedded so deep in it now? Well, I, I don't think it's ever been able to leave it behind completely. I think there's been an effort to to do so at, at different moments. Um, one of the things that um, was really interesting to me in working on the 1940s and the 1950s and sort of the uh, horror science fiction films um, is the degree to which uh, they essentially legitimized American aims in the Cold War and that this went beyond, you know, the vision or the ideas of particular writers and directors um, into uh, the American state and indeed the, the, the Pentagon uh, playing a somewhat active role in the, in the production of some of these films. Um, a good example of this is uh, the willingness of a film not too many people have heard of today, but uh, was a big deal in 1959, uh, Atomic Submarine, uh, which is this really, really pro-American, uh, we're in charge of defeating both the Soviets and the aliens that happen to be at the North Pole at, at the same time. And it's one of the many films from that era that uh, the U.S. military, for example, um, allowed the use of Korean and uh, World War II footage, especially Korean War uh, footage, uh, gave access to uh, the use of various kinds of equipment. Um, and, you know, uh, they didn't really do this just out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, they, they knew that the the message of this was going to be very similar to what people were hearing from, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, federal uh, civil defense administration and uh, essentially other, other organs of atomic propaganda in, in the 1950s. Uh, so I, I think, you know, there's been these moments when there's been an effort to use horror to, legitimize uh uh you know the uh the the culture but it it always comes back around i mean you know george romero was sitting around watching these same movies that i'm talking about and you know was going to release night of the living dead in 1968 and just you know try to blow the whole thing up so uh so i think it's been hard for horror to get get away from that i don't think horror has gotten away from I saw uh, Dr. Hackett was shaking his head, head yes, yes, when you were saying Atomic Submarine. Did you know that one? Uh, I have not heard of that one, but there, I know there were a lot of things out at that time yeah. where they were fighting UFOs and fighting communists, and they all seemed to be the same thing. Yeah, it was, it was funny. In, in Dark Carnival, uh, Dr. Paul lays out, I think, the formula, which is there's the threat, and then uh, teenagers get involved, and then at the end, the military kind of comes riding in with the scientists to say, kind of save the day. 
seemed to be kind of yeah. the template for so many of those movies in the 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah, there was that, the one with the giant ants that, that they... Oh, the, uh, yeah, uh, Them. Them, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I watched uh, for, for that part of Dark Carnivals. I, you know, I, I estimated I watched around a, a hundred uh, of... Uh, uh, often uh, not that easy to watch films from from the 40s and, and 50s in terms of both production value dialogue and and other things but the thing I was struck with is that you know in my classes I obviously love to talk about you know invasion of the body snatchers or uh, 1951s the thing um, but you know that those just were not <laughs> those classics were just simply not as popular uh, as uh, some of these uh, much more cheaply produced and in some cases more widely distributed uh, films that that, that really were, uh, you know, legitimizing the establishment in some very specific ways. I have have two questions for you and then a follow-up. Sure. First question is, um, do you... One of your one of the people writing about your book uh, praised your book, but also talked about how perhaps the pandemic, the of eighteen twelve, um, the not excuse me nineteen twelve, the influenza, the Spanish flu, could have also been an influence on horror because it was death coming into people's homes, it was indiscriminate. You know, good, healthy people died, sick people died. It was also, it was part of that horror of that decade. Right. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I think they're right. Uh, I, I think I would uh, nuance it just a tad um, because, um, you know, the, the, the sort of world catastrophe of the, of the Great War, uh, you know, I... I we of course used to, as you you both know, we used to think of of military history as something, you know, quite separate from uh, the history of medicine, uh, environmental history, you know, other things. Uh, now I know, you know, we tend to, to, to think try to think about these things uh, as having some kind of symmetry, and you know. Unfortunately, uh, for most people in their experience of uh, the influenza uh, epidemic, um, their experience of it was entirely tied to the experience of the Great War. Um, There's pretty good evidence, for example, that it, uh, you know, it it appears uh, because of uh, an outbreak at, at, I believe, Fort Seal in, uh, in Kansas uh, comes to the docks of, of France that way. Um, certainly, uh, it's spread in Africa, uh, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, um, was due to uh, British and German uh, soldiers who had contracted it, uh, brought it to some corners of the world that seems like it would not have made it to otherwise so i i guess i you know i i wouldn't so strictly separate it out from from the great war experience i i did think about it a lot because and and i thought about that particular criticism because um of course the the film that's 100 years old this year uh nosferatu um 
Nosferatu is essentially a, a plague, uh, and you know he, he's called the Totenvogel, the the death bird. And even though he's a vampire and you know likes to bite a neck or two uh, here and there, his real thing is like he he brings death, and they're like literally dying of the plague. And it's like, well, you know this this seems a lot like uh, you know the uh, the the influenza epidemic. Um, and maybe some people just saw it in those terms, but the, the thing that interested me is that both the director and the cinematographer, who were great war veterans, um, talked about it entirely in terms of a, a, of a symbol of the great war itself, the, the vampire that has taken the blood of millions, F.W. Murnau, I believe, said. So, um, so, so yeah, I, I don't think that that critique is necessarily wrong. I think that it, what might be wrong is to separate out, uh, you know, the, uh, the disease vectors of, of the influenza pandemic from uh, the Great War itself. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, you said this, um, and I think I, if I get you this quote right, our monsters are born out of our moments in time. So isn't it safe to assume that traumatic moments that are worldwide, like World War One, will influence future generations to create maybe a new type of genre of horror every time there's a new catastrophe? I mean, I've always wondered how much the trauma from the Civil War led to, you know, the troubles of the industrialization. And I also wondered if the uh, trauma of World War II led to the trouble and the and the rebellion of the '60s. Um, is that a, am I am I making it too simple, or am I am I jumping to too many conclusions there? Or what do you think? Well, I you know I I definitely think that uh, I definitely think that historical trauma, which just in and of itself is you know. A, I think a relatively new era of, of study is, is pretty closely woven into popular culture. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the images that I used in dark carnivals is that, that horror has acted in different ways as a kind of a, a, a dream life, uh, of, of American empire, uh, to use a, to make a Stranger Things reference, it's kind of the upside down of uh, of our historical experiences, um, and you know I don't, in a way, I, I don't like to press that too far because um, I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, get into too psychological uh, uh, an interpretation. I'm very wary of that because I think that. Um, you know, that, that's a very individual as opposed to a collective experience. But this is the wonderful thing, right, about studying pop culture is that it gives us a, I mean, these are windows into uh, the collective uh, political and social uh, experience. And so I think there's so much to be learned, whether it's, you know, post-Civil War, when you do have this enormous fascination with with an understandable fascination with death and the body and crime scenes and um, the photography of the dead and um, America's first certified serial killer with H.H. H. Holmes, certainly our first celebrity serial killer. 
you know, that that does, I think, speak to um, the kinds of things that people are afraid of. Can can, uh, can I tell a, a, a really quick story uh, about myself that's a little embarrassing, but that also <laughs> illustrates uh, this, I think. So part of the reason that I am interested in these things, so part of the germination of it at least, was... Um, in a grad school seminar on the Old South, um, in which my background in history at that point was not great, and I was mostly trying not to embarrass myself, uh, essentially. Um, I had just sort of kind of picked up somewhere, you know, in one of our readings, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, white Southern slaveholders were completely terrified, which I actually think was true, of slave rebellion. And so I said this in class, and my professor um, kind of took me apart a little bit, not a little bit, actually real hard, uh, because, you know, he said, you know, you're, you're trying to, um, you're trying to essentially divine, like, what people are uh, what people are afraid of when they're asleep in their, their beds, you, you know, which was a pretty good line and certainly put me in, in my place. Uh, but it also got me to thinking, like, what if historians could figure out, like, what people were afraid of uh, when they went to sleep in their beds? And, you know, there's, I, I, I feel like popular culture kind of gives us this, you know, sometimes quite literal screen on which to see those kinds of nightmares. Um, so I don't remember that professor's name, but thanks to that guy for, uh, for embarrassing him like that. <laughs> well, you know, I think you were absolutely right. And, and in fact, there is historical proof that people were scared to death, um, you know, of, of that very possibility. And there, sure. in fact, the Nat Turner, um, Confessions of Nat Turner, are obviously written by the person supposedly this was dictated to was written to alleviate the fears of a um, slave revolt because he talks about how he's crazy. You know, they make it out that this is one guy who went crazy and it'll never happen again. But when the, you know, that's obviously not the historical narrative. Right, right. Yeah, I just want to add in that uh, uh, Dr. Pools also has some other books might be interested in South Carolina Civil War, a narrative history, and Never Surrender, Confederate Memory and Conservatism in South Carolina Upcountry, which kind of, you know, deal more with those topics where we're dealing with World War One and horror, but uh, if you're interested in those other topics, can't recommend those books enough. They're fantastic. Uh, but uh, I, Well, they're okay. <laughs> they're, I, I actually... <laughs> Thank you very much for mentioning them. Uh, you know... I definitely was learning, you know, uh, so, but yeah, somebody might still like them if you could find them. <laughs> right. Uh, one thing that occurs to me is I have a friend who does uh, a podcast and he does a lot of uh, cultural history and he's talking about the night doctor, you know, the old right. folklore. And that to me proves the point of slaveholders being afraid of rebellion and dissension was that whole legend that propagated about, you know, the fearful 
night doctor who was going to grab you if you walked off the grounds that you were allotted to at night. So, so I agree with Dr. Hack, and I think you're absolutely were on point there. But I'm glad that guy said that because we wouldn't have gotten these great books otherwise. So, so. <laughs> yeah. I need to look him up. <laughs> I was going to say, it goes to prove that we all don't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, another question I want to ask is, I, 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 I'm going to sneak in a Lovecraft question now. So nice. how did World War I uh, affect the sensibilities of somebody like Lovecraft? You know, uh, so it, it did far more than, than I feel like really... Uh, uh, the the majority of his his biographers uh, have have noted. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about Lovecraft is that for someone who um, we you know think of, well, his intellectual interests are Georgian architecture uh, and uh, you know colonial Montreal and and Charleston. Um, I mean, in fact, he's really deeply fascinated with modernism. Um, you know, he he hates T.S. Eliot, but he's also like com completely obsessed with him. You know, and and you know, actually makes a rare outing into public to to get to listen to him one time when he has the opportunity. And so, I think that um, I think that the the Great War uh, for him, which, by the way, he he wanted to participate uh, in he, um, uh, which is a a little bit absurd to imagine. Really, uh, apparently, he he failed the, the the physical, which is not a huge surprise there. And 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 then he he tried to get into the Rhode Island State Guard, um, and his his mother uh, actually intervened to, to to keep him out of the State Guard. She had a you know a, a friend in in that that you know, essentially kept him out. So, so he never got to, uh, you know, uh, uh, discover his warrior impulses, but, um, but, but he did write frequently, uh, about the great war, both in his letters and in some, uh, very interesting, although very troubling, uh, essays, um, actually, with all the discussion about Lovecraft and race and Lovecraft's own racism, one of the things that interests me is that um, some of the things that he wrote about World War One have kind of been completely ignored in that discussion. Um, specifically, that the thing he thought was wrong with the First World War um, is that you know um, the Anglo-Saxons were fighting their Nordic brothers when, in fact, they needed to you know uh, turn their weapons on. Uh, you know, the people of color in the global South and et cetera. So, uh, you know, uh, a, a kind of uh, typical uh, Lovecraftian uh, take on that. It's also surprising when you start looking for it, uh, which I had not before working on this book, how frequently the Great War shows up um, in his fiction. And in fact, plays a key role in some of his fiction, particularly Dagon, uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, um, and um, uh, Herbert West reanimator. Right. Uh, Herbert West goes to the front, in fact, to find corpses to experiment on. I have one more Lovecraft question. I'll give Dr. Hackett a chance. So why do you think cosmic horror became sort of the, one of the, if not the first, one of the first shared universes? 
for him and his circle. You know, what yeah. was the appeal of that? Yeah, um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that Lovecraft managed to do um, was, you know, he in some ways, um, you know, he in some ways builds the first Comic-Con. It's kind of a tiny Comic-Con. <laughs> it's him and about 20 other uh, young and older men who are interested in his universe, but all of whom are tied together in ways that I think, I think are really difficult for us, even in our age of, you know, supposed hyper-connectivity to understand, where they're writing one another letters every single day of enormous length, um, where the younger members of that circle, people like Robert Block, for example, are taking, you know, Lovecraft's ideas, creating, you know, this, as you put it, and it's the best way to understand it, a shared, uh, a shared universe. Now, whether or not there's something specific to cosmic horror, I'm not sure about that. Um, it could be, and this is just a little bit off the top of my head, so tell me what you think about this. It could be that because he is not using older horror tropes, um, he's not using vampires, ghosts, etc., and and creating, you know, essentially gods, mythic beings, that, you know, that becomes kind of this open source, hey, we can make more gods. Uh, you know, um, it's like uh, taking the D&D uh, monster manual and then adding your own stuff. And then, you know, you've got this group that's, there's this constant feedback and weird tales that even though it had its tiny, tiny, tiny uh, little subscription list, probably the smallest of all the pulps, but people, you know, writing in these letters to the letter writing forums and et cetera. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this effervescence of, you know, just this group that becomes completely obsessed with it. And so much so that, as you know, you know, a, a publishing house is, is, is created. And, and, you know, isn't this amazing to think about, you know, thinking about like to, today we think about our fandoms um, being, you know, sort of what our, and I love this stuff, but, you know, it's still, you know, it's what our, our corporate masters at Disney and, and Warner Brothers tell us is going to be the next big thing. But I mean, like, just imagine like, you know, uh, being there in the 1930s and you're like, hey, you know, we love this obscure writer's stuff so much that we're going to create a whole publishing house. We're going to call it Arkham House and it's going to at least originally be dedicated, you know, to his work. Uh, and, you know, so there, there's something about all that that's also kind of at, at the birth of fandom, even though fandom takes a very different trajectory, I yeah, I think I think you've got it. Well, it makes me wonder if the uh, creation of the Lovecraftian mythos mm -hmm. is a product is a result of World War One as well. I mean, 
uh, created an alternate universe. I can't think of anything in literature, and maybe I'm just not thinking straight, where a whole outside world is created and then is adapted by other writers. Is this the first time this has ever happened? Uh, I feel like at the, on the tip of my tongue, there is one other example that I didn't actually discover, but that someone pointed out to me of that, because my sense of it is that that's new as well. Um, I do think that the... I do think that the, the the nihilism of Lovecraft's universe, uh, the idea that, you know, it's not a struggle between good and evil. There, there's just no benign powers out there. I mean, I, I think that that's, for many people, what the world feels like after, after 1918. I also think, and, you know, this is part of Wasteland and Dark Carnivals, I... I also think that's why Lovecraft really is unknown and, and his tales are unknown in his own lifetime. Um, you know, he, um, he probably would have had a, a better circulation and a, a stronger following in, in Europe where there actually was a lot of interest in that kind of understandably a lot of interest in that, that bleak material, just because the, the experience of the United States both in World War One and Two, is obviously, as as you know, uh, you know, quantitatively uh, different, uh, to say the least. I was, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, the 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 creation of another world is easier to write than writing about the current world. You know, you have you can, he can complain about things, and he can he can demonstrate things without really getting people to think too much, and maybe mm -hmm. that's the attraction. Yeah, you, you know, it, it could be, um, and and certainly some of his work is um, is a bit ungrounded, you know, in that way. I. Um, uh, because he did occasionally write what, you know, we would essentially think of as, uh, as, as fantasy, you know, but, uh, but then, you know, I'm also thinking about how in his horror classics, he, he actually does really want to ground that in, you know, a, a specific geography and, and like, it's sort of clear the historical context that it's happening. And I mean, like he tells, he, one of the things that struck me is just how often he makes sure that you know that this is during the Great War or it's immediately after or two years after, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So it's definitely definitely the, a, a shadow hovering there for sure. Yeah. So as a biographer of Lovecraft, and you've read a lot of his, uh, you know, handwritten letters to his fans and uh, co-writers, how much allegory was in his that? Or do you think it was conscious or subconscious? Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that he thought of it or would have wanted it thought of in, in terms of in terms of allegory. Um, I think that uh, as is true, you know, uh, for most fiction writers, I think this is also true for most film directors. I mean, you know, 
there's a sense in which even when they make an allegory, nobody wants to admit that it's an allegory because it it sounds paint by numbers, you know, and it, it, it sounds kind of simplistic. Uh, this is why we're talking about George Romero earlier. You know, he he denied for years that there was any social uh, meaning to Night of the Living Dead and choosing a black protagonist was purely by accident, uh, you know, and that that kind of thing. Um so I, I don't know that it's that, that it's conscious allegory. I think it's just uh, an awareness of um, sort of the, you know, uh, the 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 terror the, the terrors of history and the, the the terrors of the moment, and that you can you can highlight those uh, in certain ways um, by creating these these mythic landscapes. But at the same time. Uh, you're also calling attention to the very real world, you know, horrors. I mean, thinking about Herbert West reanimator, uh, the, the, in, in the, the, not, not the film, uh, which is a favorite, but, but, but Lovecraft's actual story, you know, um, it, that, it just simply would not be as grotesque if he did not have the description of the trenches and uh, what modern weapons were doing to bodies and that kind of thing. So I have a softball question for you. And maybe, maybe <laughs> Thank not. You. But I'm uh, ready for one. Is there, Those are hard. Well, are there, is there movies or, you know, books that you think show your thesis to the hilt that that are your favorite movies in the horror genre? Uh, yeah, I mean, no, not all the ones that I think, uh, you know, kind of, you know, prove some of my points are, are my favorites, you know, e e exactly. Like there's not, uh, not a one-to-one -one correspondence, but um, in, in thinking about, for example, um, uh, not just the films of George Romero, but thinking about uh, John Carpenter's uh, films, which really, um, you know, particularly looking at them now from uh, from the mid 1970s um, until he essentially retired, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you know, it, it, it's an extended catalog of, of, of social criticism uh, that, uh, you know, has called into question um, our notions about um, suburban harmony, uh, consumerism, um, the American military industrial complex. Uh, he, uh, he, he even made an extraordinarily controversial uh, abortion-related uh, 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 short film for the, the Masters of Horror series. Um, and so, you know, it's fascinating to me that, you know, someone who, a little bit like Wes Craven, a little bit like Toby Hooper, or other directors who are important to me, that... You know, in some ways, they were kind of these these aging hippies, and and you know, they're not they're not political theorists, you know, but they they definitely just like everybody who came out, you know, you know, except for maybe Spielberg and Lucas, everybody that came out of film school in the sixties and seventies, they wanted to make a relevant movie, you know, they wanted to make a film that was going to say something. 
Um, and so I think that that's, that's so interesting with that generation and then to see how that's carried forward with Jordan Peele, for example, who, you know, has looked back to these films for inspiration and has said, you know, hey, I didn't make this, uh, you know, this doesn't, this isn't this new woke horror thing. Like, you know, the, the uh, politics and horror have gone together uh, since, since forever. Yeah, I want to ask you, uh, one of the central, uh, I guess the central thesis of your Dark Carnival is the concept of the shark and the chainsaw. And yeah. I was doing a uh, probably a pretty bad job explaining it to some people around. I was just saying, he talks about this and it's so on point. So I wonder if you could kind of summarize the two types of film, uh, two types of horror literature, yeah. the shark and the chainsaw. Yeah, so what what that came out of was, and the, the, the point of it was really to try to find a way to talk about there are there are films that make us comfortable uh, with the American experience uh, in horror. There are films that in certain ways legitimize it. And then there are films that, that challenge that and that uh, the, the point of them is really to, to make us uncomfortable. And so to me, a good place to begin, although I, you know, I think I could have picked there, there's, there's several options I could have picked, but you know, what I chose was Toby Hooper's uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, uh, best title ever, you know, and so it couldn't be called anything else. As I told somebody the other day, you know, there's no way you could have called it the, the Connecticut Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> and it never the same, the same, um, and, and, and then Spielberg's uh, Jaws. And, you know, these are, these are both, horror films. These are both bloody films. Interestingly enough, Jaws is probably bloodier than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, you know, despite the, the difference in, in rating and, and despite the perspective on it. But um, these films are, give us very, very different Americans. Uh, Toby Hooper's film, as I talk about in the book, is really something like a revisionist Western and uh, comes out of a time when people were making revisionist Westerns and suggests that, you know, there's something absolutely terrifying about the American frontier, the old American frontier, but, you know, also these new frontiers that, that Hooper was so, you know, in, in Vietnam and elsewhere. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, uh, Spielberg gives us Amity Island, uh, the, the, the name of which kind of says it all, right? Amity Island. And, and uh, there's a monster out there that, uh, that is coming to get us. Uh, we, we're not the monster. Uh, the, the, the monster's not here. The monster's out there. And, um, you know, a couple guys kill it, you know? And, uh, and everybody's, you know, everybody's happy. Uh, in fact... Um, one of the most, I, I wasn't able I, to, to get this into the, the book, but um, um, the, the studio actually wanted Spielberg to do sort of kind of more of a, a horror movie ending where um, as, as, as Scheider and, and, and Dreyfus are, uh, you know, kind of huck finning their raft uh, back to, uh, back to Amity Island. He, he, they wanted a, a pullback and, and you know, hundreds of, of, of fans, uh, you know, going to and and Spielberg said no way. Uh, you know, he wanted the 
raft, the two heroes uh, going off into the sunset. Um, everything's everything's okay. Uh, there's no sequel. Of course, there would be, but not by Spielberg. That wasn't you know Spielberg's vision. It's let's kill the monster, and uh, then we can be Amity Island. Uh, so. These are, you know, these are different political options. These are different ways of thinking about the American past, different ways of thinking about the American present. Uh, they come up in horror all the time. Um, one of my favorite movies of that time period, I think it's John Carpenter, was Halloween. Yes. And Same. when I was in undergrad, we talked about it quite a bit as being a very religious movie. Huh. Because the idea being that you have this um, creature, this killer, who comes at you. He's unrelenting. He never stops. He cannot be, you know, you can stab him, you can shoot him, you can do all sorts of stuff, but he keeps coming. And he only kills the bad people. And the definition of bad people is teenagers who have, do not do what they're supposed to do, and they all go out and have premarital sex. So you'll notice that the person that lives um, is the only person who did what they're supposed to do. That She did her homework. She stayed home. She babysat. She didn't go out drinking. She didn't go out partying. She didn't go out and have premarital sex. And she's the only person that lives. So this, class, this course I took decades ago talked about how a lot of movies are very religious and they support certain worldviews that God is going to come back. He's going to punish the wicked. There's nothing you can do about it. And the good people will survive. Um, but it still remains one of my favorite movies. So I'd like to hear what you think about that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I have mixed feelings, I think, uh, uh, you know, about that particular reading. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a definite argument that that's out there that that. You know the slasher, all the slasher films of that era, that you know are are monsters. Uh, whether it's Jason or, or Michael Myers, that or Freddy Krueger, that they're kind of these uh, weird moral custodians that you know, as you're noting, you know, are kind of in charge of uh, of, of uh, punishing people for adolescence, uh, maybe punishing people for being young, uh, and you know my. I have some quibbles with that, uh, in part just because of some of the creator's reactions to it. Um, Carpenter got a lot of criticism for Halloween for this reason, and he was very taken aback by it and, and you know, actually said, you know, hey, I've, uh, this is an actual quote. He said, hey, I, I didn't realize I was single-handedly ending the sexual revolution. That, that, is, <laughs> not, that is not what... Uh, what this was about um and you know uh, but I, I think that that interpretation has informed the way that we we watch those films so that we sometimes miss a few things because you know it's actually not the case for example that laurie doesn't party you know laurie smokes pot in uh in, in halloween and uh that's not that big a deal today but you know that was 1978 uh there's never a moment, I always point out to my students who, who, you know, have imbibed this interpretation from, you know, it shows up in Scream. I mean, that's the whole basis of Scream is that there's a template. And so students look for that template 
but when I say to them, you know, look for this in Halloween, like, when are we told that, that, that about Lori Strode's virginity? Like, it, um, you know, when is that, you know, sort of, sort of explained to us? So I, I think some of that is, is, you know, reading back a, a later interpretation. Um, I think that, um, I think that there's a book, uh, with a wonderful name that I'm sure you've both heard of it, the men, women, and chainsaws, um, by Carol Clover. And, and she, she actually, it came up with the term final girl. And so a lot of our interpretation of, of the slasher genre does, does come from her. And she has, some, she has a lot of good points, you know, certainly. And some films did do that, but I, I kind of have the sense that maybe they were, I, I think that maybe they were copying what they thought was a formula that wasn't originally meant to be a formula, you know. Uh, so. yeah. uh, Scott, uh, are we keeping you? Are you okay for time? Uh, I just actually just noticed, so we're at like 3.30. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wondered like if maybe a couple, maybe a couple kind of wrap up. Sure. Yeah. I want to get back to my question about What's your favorite horror film? Oh, my favorite is that my favorite is The Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein. James Whale's 1935 Bride of Frankenstein. I think it's a, I think it's actually a perfect film just as a film, just in terms of its length. And um, he was himself so involved in every aspect of it that even though, you know, as they say, auteur theory had not been invented yet. Uh, he uh, was an auteur from in, in, in that, and so... So you're referring to uh, James yeah. Whale, the director? Yes. James Whale, yeah. And you do a great job of, of tracking his influence through the universal horror uh, oh. uh, era in Wasteland. So highly recommend, uh, if you're interested in those those old greats. Yeah, I remember that film well. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 wonderful. Uh, some people have told me that they feel cheated that they don't see the bride until the final moments, but I I actually think that that's very intentional, and I think part of the reason that she's become so iconic is that you know we didn't get an entire film uh, of her; we just got these very interesting moments. 